This program is brought to you by the Provost Teaching Fellows at the Faculty Innovation Center of the University of Texas at Austin. And the children disclaimer goes for me too. I have three of them and they're out there. But you didn't transport them into space, did you? My husband's not home and I fed them and I told them, I'm doing something for the radio and they will hear everything. everything. So you have to be very quiet and do not come in. <laughs> as people shapes who we are as teachers about how our lived experience informs our teaching uh, we can be flexible and adapt and change this you're, you're free to do that we don't have to have it perfect we are about getting folks together from all walks of teaching life the key phrase you, you suggest there is it, it has to be done collectively we have so much to learn from the other side of campus <laughs> from the university of texas at austin this is The Other Side of Cannabis. Hi, I'm Stephanie seidel Holmston. I'm an assistant professor of instruction in international relations and global studies in the government department, and I'm a provost teaching fellow. And hi, I'm Jen Moon, and I'm an associate professor of instruction in the College of Natural Sciences and also a provost teaching fellow. Our guest today is Dr. Chelsea West Ohori who brings a unique perspective to her teaching and research on race that comes out of her life and work in the U.S. and abroad. I made it clear from day one, like, this is not a class where we have two podiums and we're debating the existence, nor are we dealing with the, oh, what do both sides say? Like, there is no, there's no other side <laughs> that we're that I'm giving a platform to in this class. Dr. Chelsea West Ohori is a cultural anthropologist and an assistant professor in the Department of Slavic and Eurasian Studies. Her scholarship and teaching are primarily concerned with the study of racialization, marginalization, and structural inequality. She's conducted extensive ethnographic research throughout Albania and is interested in the construction of race and belonging among Albanian, Romanian, and Egyptian communities in Southeastern Europe. You have also studied race and health disparities in Austin with UT's Dell Medical School. Chelsea, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. I'm more excited to talk with you about your research, about anthropology, race, marginalization, and how all of that impacts your work in the classroom and what we're all still trying to get right. Why don't we start by asking you to tell us a little bit about growing up in Mississippi and explain how in the world you ended up in Albania. Yeah, yeah this is a story that I end up sharing often. In fact, there was a time in my life where if I ever got invited for a talk, I just began with this story because it, it always comes up. <laughs> it's always in Q&A, so just, I'll just weave it in. So growing up in Jackson, Mississippi, and my family uh, is originally from Natchez, Mississippi. And on my mom's side, my dad's family is actually from Texas. So it, it's a nice little story about how I kind of found my way back to Texas. Growing up in Jackson, I didn't know what anthropology was, never took an anthropology course, but I always enjoyed classes, my social studies classes. But I always looked at it as kind of just this interest that I had in wanted to know more about the world and people. But, and, and then I, in particular, I was very interested in history and black history. But again, I, those were interests. I would do a lot of reading. My dad would actually assign me essays to do for him on the weekends that were in addition to work that I would do for school. But when I was going to college, I thought I only had two options. I thought I had to be a lawyer or a doctor. 
I was convinced that those were the only two possibilities. And so when I began college at a small liberal arts school, Millsaps College, it's literally across the street from my high school, um, which is across the street from my elementary school. So I was in this same block for pretty much um, all my life. So I was about 22. But during registration, I remember whispering to an assigned advisor then that I didn't think I wanted to go to medical school. And I remember she said, well, that's okay. I was like, well, I don't think you understand. Like, I I don't want, I don't know if I want to do this. And she was like, well, why don't you just maybe take some other classes and get some prerequisites out of the way and then explore. And so in my first writing class that I took, uh, I really enjoyed um, that class with that professor. And she was uh, really influential in terms of my college experience. And she uh, was the one who pushed me to take a social science and sociology was school. And so she said, well, anthropology is kind of like a cousin discipline. And I was like, well, okay. And so when I signed up, I, I immediately loved the class. I, I was just really engrossed, but we were assigned to do an ethnographic study that I think if I look back on it, the assignment was maybe six to eight pages, but I ended up producing this 28 page document about race and private schools in Mississippi. And it was kind of a historical anthropology analysis. And I even convinced the principal at this very wealthy, very racially segregated private school to let me do some interviews and sit in on some classes. Long story short, that professor for intro to anthropology, I'll never forget. He's we're actually great friends now and I write him all the time about my students who are just overzealous. But you know, he was like, I think you need to keep taking classes. And so I told him I never left the U.S. and I was very interested in studying abroad. And I had an older cousin who had left the Deep South and she would always tell me that I just couldn't stay in Mississippi my entire life. And she would push me every few weeks. She's like, I'm going to be looking to study abroad. But all of the trips were just super expensive. And so I told that professor and he recommended me to another colleague of his who was going to Albania. And he was doing an ethno-archaeological project. And so it was mostly archaeologists, but had a couple ethnographers, historians. And he, based on the word of this other uh, professor, invited me to go. And I'll never forget, because I had to actually rush back to my dorm. I still had a globe at the time. And I had to go confirm. I, I knew where he was talking when he said Albania, but I just you know, had to kind of play it like, okay, but let me go make sure I know what I'm talking about. But that, that's kind of how that started. And that was in 2006. makes me think about how important it is to have faculty recognize potential and lift people up. You know, to that that reference to the other professor that connected you with this trip to Albania, like, I mean, that happened just by word of mouth, as you said. It's, yeah. it's extraordinary to think about that. Yes. I had some amazing mentors and, and including the two of them um, during college. And I think also there was a benefit too of being in that small classroom liberal arts environment as well, because they were able to make those connections and I was able to get that opportunity. But yeah, also to the fact that that professor, though he may have been slightly annoyed that he had to read that paper, you know, turn it <laughs> around in a week, <laughs> but he recognized that I had a strong interest. And so, and when we went to Albania that first summer, I did start off doing a lot of the archaeology, um, but I laughed because like maybe our second day, we were doing mostly survey archaeology and someone came, uh, we were in people's private houses, like in their yards and in their land, surveying their land. We'd get permission and we started going, maybe so maybe we talked to the head of house, get permission. But without fail, those first few days, somebody from the family, usually a grandmother, would come and start pulling at me and pull me away. And I didn't speak Albanian at the time, but they would just start talking. And the first, so the first two words I learned were coffee or cafe and then shippi, which is house. And it basically was like coffee, my house, right? And 
So the lead for that, our team would like get frustrated and come find me like 45 minutes later. And I'm just sitting on a stump in someone's yard. <laughs> no idea what they're saying. I'm drinking amazing Turkish coffee, but like, but people are insistent that I do not do this work. And finally, you know, one of the other project leads who was also Albanian and translated, he would say things like, well, they don't think she should be in the fields. Like she's a woman, what's she doing here? They also have lots of questions. Like she's black, we never seen a black person, what's going on? And so, that's what ultimately began to shape a lot of my research questions. I always thought that that, that professor thought I was going to be an archaeologist, but he recently told me that he never thought I was going to be an archaeologist, that he knew I was more of a cultural anthropologist. Either way, that summer proved I was not made for archaeology, but that's kind of how this all got started. <laughs> sometimes we just say yes right we say yes and we dig in sometimes literally right yeah, and then yeah. we begin to see okay when I'm in this world what am I interested in I'm interested in talking to people and hearing their stories right and uh -huh, then there you uh -huh. go yep that's exactly what happened yeah and I love that you did so without even knowing the language like you didn't even yeah <laughs> they're having some coffee Watching mannerisms, I guess. I mean, I'm yes, and just trying to take in what I could. And Albanian is a pretty difficult language too. And I'm trying to think back to when I couldn't understand it. And but I, I, I think I was just kind of making do with mannerisms. A lot of Albanians speak Italian because during the communist regime, it was not allowed to have any access to any radio and TV outside of Albania. But people were able to tap into Italian television signals. So lots of Albanians learned Italian through TV and radio, and many are fluent still in Italian. So it was common then and still common now for people to start speaking Italian with me, but I also don't speak Italian. Even then, <laughs> we, we're just been getting frustrated in yard. They speak Albanian and they speak Italian. I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't know any, I don't know either, you know? <laughs> so. You have an amazing platform to speak to students about race. How does your research affect the way you structure the class or affect the kinds of work you do in the classroom? So right now, my primary areas of interest are thinking about race and racialization in Albania and the Balkans. And so my book really focuses on the processes that shape race and not necessarily thinking how can we take Western concepts of race and racialization or racism and apply them to Albania, but rather what could a place like Albania tell us about race and racialization? There's often an idea that racism and racialization are only concerns of the West or of the U.S. But some of my primary questions are, well, race is very global, white supremacy is very global. And so trying to understand that in a global context through this research in the Balkans, then also really getting into questions about why do we talk about race in some places and ethnicity elsewhere? And what are the processes that shape what we even mean by race versus ethnicity? And then also to really getting at these constructions of whiteness and blackness and what we can learn from study in Albania about how those operate like in a European context and really thinking about race in Europe from Eastern Europe. So those are some of the key things that I think about in my research. And right now, um, this past semester, I taught a class on white nationalism. It was um, comparative white nationalism and really thinking about the global rising tides of white nationalism, if you will. And and how white nationalism has manifest throughout the world right now, but also looking at linkages between places like Eastern Europe and Australia, Russia, and the U.S. And then for the fall, my class is on health, illness, and inequality. 
and really thinking about how racism shapes health and health outcomes from a global perspective. So I would say that at least so far for this year, my classes have been directly shaped by those inquiries. But also when I think about, so in the spring, my graduate course is going to engage some aspect of of ethnography in Eastern Europe and, or, or rather ethnography in Europe broadly. I think that my approach to race shapes that entire inquiry as well. So it's not just how can we fit race into this class, but rather given our racialized landscapes that occur across the world, how does that then shape our approach to studying human culture and differences, right? So this is a particular moment, right? Mm -hmm. Thinking, Mm -hmm. so right, you taught white supremacy in the spring, Mm -hmm. and now you're teaching another class in the fall, but Mm -hmm. thinking about what happened between the spring and the fall, right? We have Mm -hmm. a global pandemic, shelter Mm -hmm. in place orders, those affected by COVID-19 certainly demonstrate structural and institutional Mm -hmm. racism. Um, We have this deep wrestling on a national and international stage around racialization, and we have an upcoming election. Mm-hmm. This mm-hmm. is a moment. It's for sure a moment. So much so that I actually am redoing the entire class. So um, it's <laughs> I, I had already been thinking about a way I was going to teach this pre-COVID and pre this particular moment. And I've changed the entire course. I'm carrying the independent inquiry flag, which I'm very excited about because I also think it's a perfect moment for students to do their own independent inquiry around these subjects. So I'm very much looking forward to that. I think one of the key things from this moment, especially thinking about COVID and also too in light of the protests as well, is really distinguishing between racism and race. I think back to some of the early comments that were made in March, particularly regarding COVID and its disproportionate impact on Black and Brown Americans. We saw how a lot of understandings of race as biological were still very fixed and people were still really clinging to those to understand the differences. And then we also saw a lot of blame placed on Black and Brown folks, even from the Surgeon General making comments like, you know, do it for Big Mama, do it for Abuelita in terms of, you know, Black and Brown folks need to take more responsibility in their actions so they wouldn't get COVID. I actually, I'm entitling a week in this semester called Do It For Me Ma because no one has said that now that more white populations are being impacted by COVID. I've been actually waiting on that shoot a drop. It hasn't, it won't. But my, that's my point is that the response to even the disproportionate impact was to think about biological ideas of race or to blame black and brown people. When in fact, as you said, Stephanie, this really has laid bare just how deep the inequalities are when it comes to structural racism. And so I'm using this moment as an opportunity to really teach that. I think the entire first third of the class is going to just really grapple with that. Thankfully, there's a lot of great things, both written now, but also previously written about race and health and race in the body to really get at understanding of racism and when we talk about racism impacting health. And also too, because in my time as a postdoc at the med school, my interactions with med students, it was fairly common for many of them to understand the disparate impacts. So let's say for instance, maternal mortality of black women, many of them understood that as having to do with lifestyle or if it were structural in terms of like access to health. But very few understood about the impacts of racism on the body over time or understanding the ways that physicians were carrying out medical racism 
even if they were conscious of it or not. And so I think this is also another opportunity to really get at that. And, and then think too about things like occupation and housing, food access, medical access, proximity to hospitals and clinics. Um, Austin itself provides a fantastic model to look at access to health services east of 35 compared to west of 35. But my class doesn't just focus on the U.S., right? And so COVID's impact on populations, especially structural impact, we can see that across the globe. And so, in fact, we'll probably be starting with examples from both Russia and Albania because we can see the disparate impact on Romani populations. I'll probably be starting the class with looking at that and helping students to understand how these processes are interlinked across the globe. This is, and this is not in particular a U.S. phenomenon, but COVID has, itself has just drawn more attention to how much structural racism has shaped our society here in the U.S. You know, I think about this a lot also in positions in the economy, right? And who can social distance jobs in service and production sectors and the ways in which racialization has occurred in, in those sectors too, right? Yes, absolutely. And again, I, and I think that's where it kept like teaching is really important because when some people have done great reporting around that exact topic, right? And who is an essential worker and who gets to work from home, right? But even in that reporting, a lot of times that distinctions between understanding how racism has shaped that is not there, right? And so people might talk about the outcomes being different for Black people, but then others might interpret that to say, oh, well, that's that demographic or that's a problem of Black people and not understanding that where we are where we are because of structural racism. And I think that's absolutely key is understanding who was on the front lines and why. I was thinking about whether students are going to come to class in the fall being more prepared to have those conversations in your experience. I mean, what do you think your students will be like in the fall? Do you think they'll be ready for it? Will they be sensitized to it? How, how do you? I think based upon the conversations that I've had with those students this summer, I do think that students are going to come very ready to talk about a lot of these issues and they have lots of questions. At the same time, though, I can tell that many people are already tired of talking about COVID. And so I think part of it, too, is understanding that there, there are things that students do want to talk about and want to discuss. But right now, I think it's pretty difficult to talk about health and inequality and not talk about COVID. Let's talk about other things. And yeah, so, kind of the um, <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So we're just, we are going to talk about it, but um, it's, uh, too, it's about balancing it and not, and also trying to get a gauge on where students are and how they're responding to know, you know, how then to really like focus on in which areas for the course. I will say that for my spring class, most people were willing, to, because the subject was white nationalism, there already needed to be some idea of understanding something about race to stay in the class. I did have to drop after the first day and I, because I, I made it clear from day one, like this is not a class where we have two podiums and we're debating the existence, nor are we dealing with the, oh, what do both sides say? Like, there is no, there's no other side <laughs> that we're, that I'm giving a platform to in this class. Like, like we can really wrestle with and understand the relationship between race and gender and 
I had to make that clear because we're not debating the humanity of people. And so when teaching about it, students already have to be at a certain level or at least interested and willing to to want to do. So I don't know if I encounter more of them in the fall, right? A lot of students, and this happened this past semester, actually, some students were like, well, if race is so bad, why do we still use racial terms? Why do we still use racial language? Why do we still fill out race on forms? Like, let's just, let's just move beyond it. Um, there's, I do still, inc- I encounter that from quite a few students of this idea of just wanting to be not necessarily even colorblind as much as just beyond race. It's very po- still post-racial, right? Um, and so it takes some time to really get students to understand that, yes, thinking about and imagining a different type of relationship with one another and a different type of community that's not shaped by white supremacy is good. But the way to get there is not to ignore race or pretend that we're not racialized. Um, and that, in fact, we have to have these reckonings to be able to get there. Um, but it just kind of takes some time to get you know, to teach that. Imagine that you're sitting around with some colleagues in your department. And, and this is for, because I always have to throw out this question. We're, we're talking about a specific research area and kind of um, area of study. And I'm coming from sciences. When you're sitting around colleagues in your department and you're like, wow, I wish those guys over in the STEM area <laughs> um, would do X with their students or would have such and such a conversation or would set up their classrooms in such a way. I personally struggle with a lot of this because I teach genetics. And it's in, or, or molecular biology, it sort of feels a little less like you don't have to engage on that level. Like you, th- that's the excuse we make, right? We don't have to engage on that. We don't have to talk about any of this because it has nothing to do with molecular biology, let's say, right? But the students are coming from their own experience and this is the world we live in. I guess what I'm trying to ask is, do you have advice? Yes, I think that's a good question. And so I'll give one specific answer and example and then maybe kind of think too broadly. So a colleague of mine teaches a class in the Bridging Disciplines program, Race and American Medicine. This is John Hoberman's class. And sorry, John, if I butchered that title. But that is the gist of the class. And there are a lot of pre-med students that were taking this class. And so he asked if I would come and give a lecture and thoroughly enjoyed doing. During my lecture, I talked about health inequities and particularly thinking about both access to care, but then the different levels of, of health care delivery and particularly thinking about how Black populations aren't given the same type of care. And I used the example of sickle cell disease. And we had a very long discussion about um, sickle cell disease during this presentation. So a student stayed afterwards who was majoring in in genetics, and she stayed um, because she had only learned about sickle cell disease in terms of the benefits as it relates to genetics, right? And so she had a moment, I had to stay with her about 10 minutes because she had a really hard time. For her, she had never been taught to think about the experiences of people with sickle cell disease and understanding racism as it relates to this because her only introduction was in thinking about genetically sickle cell disease and thinking about malaria, right? And so I use that as an example of ways that people who teach in genetics and biology could absolutely shed light on inequities and also the things that are very well documented. Journals like Health Affairs are very good for looking at like a survey of family medicine physicians and over a quarter uncomfortable treating patients with sickle cell disease and 
Like that, this is one example, right, of showing how we can talk about this genetically. We like to talk about how then it presents and how people's lives are shaped unequally as a result. That same journal, I will only say to you, I'm going to go back and double check, but also looked at, I'm comparing, for example, teachings on genetics and cystic fibrosis as it relates to sickle cell disease, right? So again, like those are opportunities that are absolutely there. There are many people who study biological anthropology, evolutionary anthropology, who engage in these questions as well around racism and race. Robin Nelson is one person who comes to mind in particular. So I, sometimes it's just about finding people within these fields broadly who do this work and incorporating it. There could be some things every few weeks that help frame that discussion. So maybe it's just something students engage for only 10 minutes, but as an understanding of, okay, we're talking about biology, but here are some applications of, as they pertain to these current issues, right? Like, and that could be one way to just to make the links. That's excellent. That's an excellent mm -hmm. suggestion. I'm excited about doing that in the fall. <laughs> <laughs> Chelsea, I loved your point about unlearning. And I wonder, as you think about redesigning your fall class, what core priorities do you have in mind for that class and that redesign particularly? The class in the beginning was going to be on health and inequality, right? Going back to that, that point I made about distinguishing between race and racism, really focusing more on these structural and institutional processes for students so that we can read an individual story, but understand how this speaks to a structural problem. I'm now trying to fine tune the way I teach that. And then I think I'm rebalancing because I am an anthropologist. I like teaching a lot of ethnographies, but I find it more and more difficult to teach more than one entire book. Like in ethnography, it's, just, it's easier to do chapters. And actually, I don't like that. I like teaching an entire book because it's an entire book for a reason. But I am now, though, trying to find a balance between teaching parts of ethnographies, parts of books, but also making more space for an Atlantic article, for example, because right now a lot of things that are coming out faster are, you know, journalistic pieces that there are things coming out, that, you know, journals and chapters, but we're going to have to wait a while to see some of the longer term rich, you know, and deep ethnographic writing. Some, it's Again, some of it's available now, but Obviously, we're still in the midst. And so I think I have some familiarity with that because I did that with my white nationalism class as well. But just going back through and kind of fine tuning that, you know, looking at. Uh, so right now there was a recent webinar or, or, or rather or online discussion that took place in parts of Eastern Europe about food and COVID response and looking at the impact on particularly poorer communities and Romani communities and like access to food because people didn't don't have money and don't have food. Everyone was forced into these lockdowns, right? And so finding a way to weave in things like that and have students maybe listen to clips and segments because it's so current. What's remarkable to me then thinking of the start of our conversation, the role of study abroad. Do we see social constructions differently when we move out of our own community of origin and see it in another way and from another perspective? Yeah, I think for sure it can provide an opportunity, but I also have seen a lot of students carry their own racism and classism and, and what it means to be American and therefore better, right? I will say uh, one of my first understandings when I went abroad, especially as it pertained to race, was 
the fact that that first summer, wherever we went, there were, so there were three students total, two were from another institution. We were in a very remote village in the mountains when we went. And so not only had people not met a black person, but like some hadn't even seen a black person on TV because a lot of people didn't have TV. So it was, so those, those exchanges were very unique. That wasn't necessarily typical. But when we went to, we went to Montenegro one weekend and we also went to the capital city for a weekend. And all the other students, they were like, these are the Americans, right? And people would come to me and say, and, and what about this one? Or who, where is she from, right? And, and I had a hard time actually having conversations with people about this because a lot of the Americans didn't want to confront that, right? And they were just trying to say, oh, they just, they're used to Africans in, you know, the UK who tend to be more recent immigrants. That's all, like, that, like that's it. But I remember that was one of my first times really recognizing that American w- was white, right? And many Americans understood that, even if they didn't talk about it, but especially a lot of non-Americans understood that. Right? I learned that through study abroad. But I also think that some of the students fell into a lot of ideas around like, like simple notions of race on some of my study abroad trips. So I also studied abroad in, in East Africa. And for some of the white students, it was a it was a big moment. I mean, one broke down at one point was like, I've never not been in a place where I wasn't the majority and this and there are black people everywhere. You know, another one was like, Chelsea gets special treatment when we go to houses because they invite her in the kitchen and not us. Because I was the only black student. You know, at first I was just like, well, it's about time. Right? I, I, I was not sympathetic <laughs> at all. But um, and so a lot of the students there had their ideas about blackness that were shaping their own racism as it, as it was manifesting. And, and it was really complex, but often too, they would shut down and not really delve into that deeper. Some of them didn't see themselves racialized as white. They just saw themselves as just unmarked, right? Because study abroad is so white and it's like a majority white people studying abroad, right? And studying others, right? There's this very colonial you know, aspect about what it means to study the other. So there actually is a huge gap with understanding the experiences of people of color when they experience racism, which happens in most places where study abroad takes place. And I think, you know, even now I'm still trying to unpack some things that happened the first time I lived abroad for a year in Albania because I I, I didn't have a space or even like the proper person to really make sense of this. There are a lot of things that even traumatized me experiences of racial violence and, and, and as as much as like I might that experience is very formidable it shaped my research it shaped where I am today and I very much enjoy the research I do but there's a lot of racism I experienced that I didn't know how to process or what to do and then the programs and administrators in place didn't know what to do with it and so I think more about that now and as I have my own student who is experiencing some of those things and has experience in his own research and his experience in Eastern Europe and Russia, only now too am I able as I talk with him to help like to make sense of some of the things that have happened. Again, the power of mentorship, right? An individual Mm -hmm. who can hear that story. Are you hopeful for us? Us being people? Right, I know, I was trying to decide, right? It could be sort of university or it could be the United States. Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Teaching helps keep me hopeful. I think that there's still space in the classroom, especially and through courses and through engagement that matters. But I think even in the short time I've been teaching, 
I'm already aware that maybe even that kind of change and move is, is much more gradual than I realized. The depth of of things that we need to do is is deeper. And so maybe I too do feel a particular way about teaching and yet cautiously optimistic. Also, I come from a long line of teachers informally and formally, right? But my um, grandmother was a teacher, my maternal grandmother. My maternal grandmother was in education and my grandfather was a teacher. And I've always looked to like my parents, my aunts and uncles, you know, and, and the ways that they've taught me. And so I know the importance of teaching and learning and passing knowledge, right? So I, I remain hopeful in that regard and then and preserving especially that knowledge, especially thinking about in the talk context of Black lives, right? I think that's important. If the university, for example, is, is going to be serious about really making change, then that change has to be widespread and, and very transformative because I think some people are just trying to take three steps and others are already two miles ahead and saying like, and we have so much further to go, right? And I don't know if people are all on the same page about how transformative that change needs to be. But it also, you know, it underscores how we all have to be in on this lifting the load and to whatever capacity we can. You know, some may be able to lift more than others just because of their capacity to understand the problem is in a, is a sophisticated way. But if we all can kind of like at least be pointing in the same direction, yeah, <laughs> and all yeah, with the load. And so, a student experience here might not have to just rely on your class or, or and of your colleagues to get that information and to think about this in a totally different frame. You know, it's coming from all of us that there's some refrain that we all are are getting to. So that requires also that all of us as faculty and, and instructors educate ourselves. Jesse, thank you so much for your time today. This has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you all for having me. Yes, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Chelsea, so much. I really appreciate it. As much as we are Provost Teaching Fellows thinking about learning, I'm now thinking about unlearning. I really <laughs> like that idea. Well said. Thanks. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Stephanie, that was an amazing conversation. I'm so glad we we asked her on. Yeah, I enjoyed our time with her for sure. What were some takeaways? I mean, what did you, what kind of resonated with you? It sounded like a lot. <laughs> yeah, you know, how remarkable that in research and teaching, unlearning yeah, yeah. is important and how that might be an important place to start the conversation of reordering our understandings around things. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine it. I hadn't thought about it in terms of cultural unlearning, you know, because of course that's our topic. And I thought about it, you know, just in teaching my class, you know, on a very practical level, like, okay, they've made this connection in their head. It's not the right connection. I need to kind of go in and, and start to get them back on the right track in terms of habit, because, you know, content builds. But of course that's true of just our own social structure, like how we think about identity and our place in in this society, having to unlearn all that is just, it, wow. And at one point she commented on, you know, we can sort of learn about race, but to truly understand how it's created through our own social practices essentially is then inviting students not to see the 
content as outside themselves, yeah. but in fact, a very reflection of the processes that they themselves are a part of, and that that is harder. Those processes were learned through our families and our backgrounds and our communities. And how do we invite questioning some of those practices? It takes a lot of emotional intelligence too. And I think that's what we're doing now as adults. I mean, you know, of course we ask our students that, but we also as faculty and just as members of a society, this is the work we're needing to do now and really reframing all of this. It's been a tough several months, but the, one of the silver linings to all this, I think is inviting us to take some time and space to do that work. And I've noticed many of my colleagues are starting that, starting that conversation with each other. And it's it's actually been really interesting. Like we've we've kind of gotten to know each other because we've had to like really dig into like how we teach and what and how we bring ourselves into that classroom and what assumptions we make and what culture norms that we impose on others when we teach the material. I mean it comes down to basic teaching skills too. For sure. And that this is the world that we are creating together and that our teaching occurs right through content and in the classroom. But Chelsea highlighted it's in individual conversations with students. It's that mentorship that happens to, I mean, could you imagine pointing a student to Albania, you know? Right. And it changed her life. I mean, that was no doubt it changed her life. That yes. one conversation with his colleague. I mean, un- unbelievable. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Reminds me, sometimes you just say yes, even if you're not sure where that's going to take you, right? You learn something about yourself. 100%. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. You've been listening to The Other Side of Campus, a production of the Provost Teaching Fellows at the University of Texas at Austin. For more information and to provide feedback, please visit us online at texasptf.org. Thank you.